0: Beloved congregation of the Lord, 480 years after the Lord brought the people of Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand and brought them into the promised land, four years into the reign of King Solomon, there was a momentous event. After all those years, God finally gave his permission and his command in order to construct the great temple of the Lord. You can read of this in 1 Kings chapter 6 to 8, of that great mighty structure with the finest jewels, with the, the finest gold, a house fit for the name of the Lord constructed exactly according to the dimensions and and plans that were revealed from God. It it took seven long years in order to create this great structure. And this was going to be the, the place where all of the official worship of God was to be centralized, all the sacrifices of the animals by the priests the singing of the psalms and it represented the great blessing which God gave to his covenant people that they were given the very high privilege of worshipping their God, Redeemer and Creator and certainly there was much about that day seven years later as, as we've read from 1 Kings chapter 8, about that great ceremony in which this temple was set apart for the solemn worship of God. Certainly one of the highlights was the bringing into the, the center of that temple, the Holy of Holies, the most special place, the Ark of the Covenant, that special golden box that was flanked by angels or cherubim on the on the top, which housed the, the very commandments of God, and above those commandments the, the mercy seat which the blood of sprinkling would be poured. It was brought, I say, into the Holy of Holies by the Levites. And at that point in which it was set apart for the worship of God, we Read, did we not, how the temple, that house of the Lord, was filled with a great bright cloud representing God's presence. The, The Shekinah glory of God, the very visible representation of his presence. It filled the temple. And such was the sense of God's majesty and glory that even the priests could not remain in there. They they had to shrink back. And what an assurance that was of God being with his people, receiving their worship, and displaying mercy and grace unto his chosen ones. Well, many years later, um, after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, another man by the name of Paul, the apostle, spoke about the reality of the Christian life in a way that pointed back to this great episode. That was the verse which we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. He spoke to the Christians of that day in this way. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple? Of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. Paul at that point was seeking to remind the Christians of that church in Corinth what it meant to be saved by the Lord. What it meant to truly be a Christian by faith. And in order to unfold this reality, he especially focuses their minds and hearts upon the reality of their indwelling by the Holy Spirit. And in order to explain that, sets forth their identity and their person, their very body, as the temple of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. This congregation is something that's very important for us to understand. Right teaching about the Holy Spirit. Without the glorious person of the Holy Spirit, the church of God is but a dead corpse. We have no spiritual life. We have no connection to God. We have nothing if we do not have the Holy Spirit true for individuals, true for churches, true for everyone. And so it's very important that we come to understand what and who is the Holy Spirit. And to help us to understand this rightly and to apply this truth to our own lives, let us turn to what we see also in our Catechism which you will be referring to throughout this sermon. Look with me in the back of your Psalters on page 48 under Lord's Day 20. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? Answer, first, that he is the true and co-eternal God with the father and the son secondly that he is also given me to make me a true make me by a true faith partaker of Christ and all his benefits that he may comfort me and abide with me forever congregation our theme this morning is the holy spirit our comforter the Holy Spirit, our Comforter. And we will have simply two points this morning. First, the person of the Holy Spirit. And second, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Well, we need to, one of the reasons, congregation, we need to give such close attention to correct teaching about the person of the Holy Spirit is that this is something that is attacked by many non Christian groups in our day. And one example would be something like the Jehovah's Witnesses, a group of people who claim to follow the Lord and yet deny that the Holy Spirit is a person. And you could multiply the number of examples. The Muslims, the the anti-Christian Jews, and, and many other people, they all denigrate the person of the Holy Spirit. If we are to be those who can truly claim to be Christians, we need to be clear about what the Bible teaches about this. And certainly, if we are going to speak about who the Holy Spirit is, who this person is, then we need to attend to this text in particular that we read. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you. Now, we know, don't we, that a temple is a place dedicated to the worship of the true God. And so where the Christian would be described as a temple of the Holy Spirit, we have there a very clear indication that the Apostle wants us to see the Holy Spirit as a divine person, as one who is truly God. But you might be asking the question, well, well, Pastor, is, is it really the case that we can verify that from this one verse? Ought we not to examine this teaching throughout other parts of the Bible? And, and I would agree. We need to come to see the, the glorious truth of the person of the Holy Spirit in a number of examples so that our our minds are clear on this point. And so for that, I'd like to direct three examples in in the Scriptures that would help us to see this reality. The, The first example in the Scriptures that would help us to see that the Holy Spirit is God would be found in the creation account, in the history we have in the Bible about the creation of our world. When you look in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, there we have those familiar words. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So there you have During the creation week, when all of this world was being fashioned, when God speaks everything into existence, there already you have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, intimately involved with this great work. It's likewise attested to in the book of Psalms, chapter 33 and verse 6, where it says, "...by the word of the Lord..." were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Another thing to see there, congregation, is this word that our Bible translates breath. In the Hebrew, it's it's the same word for spirit. When we understand what the name spirit means, we we speak of the, the breath, the breath of God. And so... You can see there, can't you, that there is a glorious testimony here of God, the Holy Spirit's work in creation. God is the one who, who created all things, and the Holy Spirit created all things. and so the Holy Spirit is God. From that do we not see From that do we not see that? As the Creator, He is eternal. He is not bound by time. He created all things of nothing, even time itself. Do we not see the the extent of His mighty power using His divine power to bring all things to existence? There we have a glorious example of the character of this, the Holy Spirit. I would further set forth this, this other example that we have in the Scriptures, and that is the Holy Spirit's involvement in all of prophecy, in all prophecy. You see this in the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. We have also a, sure, a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, even as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God, and spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So there you have a clear statement that all prophecy comes from the Holy Ghost, or we would say the Holy Spirit. He is the one who is the very origin, author, and source of all prophecy. And so wherever you would have in the Old Testament, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Isaiah, and it says something in this effect, that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, that in the midst of their darkness as the people of God, rebelling against the ways of God, there was a word from heaven, a word from God, that always came through the Holy Spirit. And of course, the central part Of that text is to direct our attention. Sorry. I would really direct our attention to the fact that the scriptures themselves are a sure word of prophecy. That every word in the sacred scriptures. They come through the authorship and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, anyone who has any acquaintance with the Holy Scriptures, if they've ever read the Holy Bible, they know something of this person. They know something of the wisdom that is revealed in this book that exceeds all the human wisdom that this world has to offer. It says, for example, in the prophecy of Isaiah, who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel? And who instructed him? And taught him in the path of judgment? And taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding? Likewise, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, The Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. We must ascribe to this author of the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit, the unsearchable wisdom of God, the one who knows all things, in whom all the treasures of wisdom is to be found. This is the Holy Spirit the true God. And for this third example that would, I believe, prove beyond any question the fact that the Holy Spirit is God, we, we find in the book of Acts, the fifth chapter. And where uh, you hear this, this solemn history, it's something that, that ought to really bring our attention to it. In the days of the early church, there were two members of that early church by the name of Ananias and Sapphira, confessing believers who had responded to the preaching of the gospel, united themselves to the worship of the true God. And what is it that we find in that history? Well, there were a number of people who were giving gifts of generosity to the apostles for the the good of the saints and for the ministry of the word, and they as well, they they gave a great gift, but they were dishonest in what they did. They they held back a certain amount for themselves while they claimed to have given the full amount that they had received from selling a a great property. And after they had committed this great sin of lying to members of the church, you notice what it says in Acts chapter 5 in verse 3 but peter said ananias why hath satan filled thine heart to lie to the holy ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land whilst it remained was it not thine own and after it was sold was it not thine own in thine own power Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. So there you have it. Peter is very clear here. He says that this lie which you've committed, it is against the Holy Spirit. And it is against God. And the clear implication that this lie and this sin was against a divine person. One who is true God. We ought never to think of the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force like air or electricity. He is someone who we can sin against. And as true God... He has all power both to save and to destroy. The sin that was committed against this Holy Spirit was such that these two confessing Christians, Anias and Sapphira, were struck dead as a consequence of their blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I trust that these three examples, congregation, prove to you that the Holy Spirit is God. And and just as our, our catechism says so clearly, it says that he is true and co-eternal God with the Father and the Son. But you notice that that catechism, it says more than just that the Holy Spirit is God, but it, it also speaks of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, something We've gone into in depth in this series the glorious teaching of the United Council of Scripture that the one true God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each one is true God, and yet the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. They are distinct and yet equally God. And this is something that we also ought to see as something plainly taught in the Scriptures, not only in our confession, but as well in the Bible itself. If we would look for proof of this teaching that the Holy Spirit is, as he's called in Christian theology, the third person of the Holy Trinity, we ought to remind ourselves of the proof of that great doctrine. Now, Whenever it is the case that a Christian is baptized, they receive, do they not, the words of the Lord Jesus pronounced over them. And we, we know those words plainly as they're revealed by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 28. Where he said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So there you have the one name of God, and it's shared equally by these divine persons God the Father and God the Son. Always distinguish these two persons in uh, the gospel histories. It is the Son who becomes incarnate, and he does so in obedience to his Father. He prays to his Father. He, he uh, serves his Father. And yet, in the same uh, baptism formula, which distinguishes the Father and the Son, you also have ranked with them in that list the Holy Spirit. He is listed as the third person of the Trinity. He's also distinguished in a text we're very familiar with, which is often pronounced in the closing blessing at the end of our service. In Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so you have these examples where the Holy Spirit is ranked with other divine persons and distinguished from them. But perhaps the, the clearest testimony is found in the latter part portion of John's gospel. In those upper room dialogues in chapter 15, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples before he is betrayed and crucified, he speaks about the Holy Spirit in such an intimate and close way. For example, John 15 and verse 26. But when the comforter is come whom i will send you from the father even the spirit of truth which proceedeth from the father he shall testify of me so much going on in that text you you have a special name applied to the holy spirit he is the comforter the one who brings comfort to his people you also have the statement that he is the spirit of truth, that all the truth of God is disclosed by him. But what ought not be uh, neglected there is that statement that he proceedeth from the Father. That this is perhaps the reason why he is called the breath of God, that from eternity, before uh, all worlds, God has breathed forth his Holy Spirit in the uh, great Godhead without beginning. He has breathed forth the Holy Spirit so that the third person of the Holy Trinity has his origin and source in the first person, God the Father. And where uh, where you look at the history of the church, you see that this has actually come under some scrutiny and discussion among the different churches of the world. In the Middle Ages, there was a break between the churches of the East that spoke Greek and the churches of the West that spoke Latin. And it was over this issue. Does the Holy Spirit proceed from both the Father and the Son or from the Father alone? And and so you had a an addition to the Nicene Creed, which we hold to, which attests that he both proceeds from the Father and the Son, while the Eastern churches rejected this and, and broke away from the churches of the West. Now, if you would uh, look throughout the, the parts of the Bible that would speak to this issue, you perhaps won't find a clear-cut uh, case where it, it speaks about the, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Son. And yet when you, when you compare all of the different texts that speak of the relationship between God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, I believe you're bound up to conclude that the Western churches were, were correct in attesting to this. I think that one of the key places is the, the many instances where the Bible refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. And not only in connection with his incarnation, but before his incarnation. One example would be in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1 and verse 10, where the apostle is speaking of prophecy again. And and listen to what he says. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify, when it testified beforehand, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And so the reality is that such a close relationship with the Holy Spirit and with God the Son that it seems as though we ought not to say that he proceeds from only the Father. No, he proceeds from both the Father and the Son. So whereas the Son proceeds from the Father alone in that relation of eternal begetting or eternal generation, the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son in what theologians call his spiration or his breathing forth from God the Son and from God the Father. And while this is all very deep things, congregation, about the very mystery of who God is, this is a foundation for our faith. It reminds us that this Holy Spirit of whom we speak, He is true God together with God the Son and God the Father, the triune God. Before we leave this Point of the person of the Holy Spirit, we ought not to neglect the reality that this person of the Holy Spirit has been given a special office. When we would speak of the office of Christ, we are talking about the fact that from the eternal counsels of God, it was the Son who was appointed to be the one who would become incarnated, born of the Virgin Mary, to suffer and die for our sins and rise again on the third day. But we ought not neglect that it's the Holy Spirit who also has a special office. He is the one who applies the salvation of Christ unto his people. From eternity, this was the great plan of the triune God, that he as well would be sent from heaven by Jesus Christ to indwell his church. And in terms of the the testimonies of of this truth, you have not to look much further, in fact, than uh, the text of which we've read. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Their congregation is this great testimony of the fact that the Christian is a holy um, temple of God, that everyone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit has been set apart to have the very third person of the Godhead, the very creator of the universe, the very author of the scriptures, to live and abide in us. This is something that really rises and elevates the dignity of even the lowliest and weakest of believers. Here is a very special honor and privilege which separates you, believer, apart from everything else that you could think about. God has so loved you that he desires to make you holy, to set you apart as holy unto The Lord, what a glorious office of the Holy Spirit. This person of the Holy Spirit is to be regarded not only with such awe and wonder and worship, but also with such love by the believer, because he is the one who sanctifies us. Now, that brings us to our second consideration not only the person of the Holy Spirit, but the presence of the Holy Spirit. The fact that this Holy Spirit is is spoken of as present in his people, as the very temple of the Lord, is is something that we need to pry into a little bit more and see what is it that this really means? What is the meaning of it? Well, Peter, he, or, or rather Paul, He spoke very uh, clearly about this earlier on in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple is. Ye are. And so you, you might be confused, children, where you would say, well, how is it that Christians have the Holy Spirit living in them? Don't we believe that the, whole, that the Holy Spirit as God is everywhere? Doesn't he fill the very heavens and everything that is in them? How is it that he is not in every human being that exists in this world? Well, indeed, I think we ought not to deny that everyone uh, has the Holy Spirit in them in the sense that he is their creator and sustainer. And when we would think about all the amazing gifts that human beings have, their ability to think and reason, to make beautiful art, to make advances in technology, these are often ascribed by theologians as gifts of the Holy Spirit. But we speak about these things as gifts of common grace. What we mean by that is that God shows his goodness to all people and gives them certain blessings through his Spirit. But that's certainly not what uh, the texts that we've been reading are, are talking about. This is Before us, the indwelling of special grace, God's special presence with his chosen people that brings blessings that no one other than a Christian will enjoy. And this is also what our catechism speaks about so clearly, where after it speaks about the reality of the person of the Holy Spirit, it goes on to say, secondly that he is also given me to make me, a tr- to make me by a true faith partaker of Christ and all his benefits, that he may comfort me and abide with me forever. Whenever we would think about uh, God the Holy Spirit and dwelling believers, we ought to think of his amazing gifts that he bestows by his grace. And to un- unfold this reality of the presence of the Holy Spirit in his people, making them the holy people of the Lord, I'm going to uh, list a number of, of these ways in which he works. The first, when we speak about his indwelling of his people, we ought to think of his uh, work in illuminating us, his gift of illumination. Because however much common grace you may have received, however many blessings of a a good mind and of the ability to think and and reason and to live in in the world, the reality is that there's no true knowledge of God in any one of us by nature. However much we may have heard of God and, and thought about God, there's always this terrible barrier because we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness, as it is said in Romans chapter 1. And so you have, for example, in uh, Genesis chapter 6, God said in the days of the flood that his spirit would not always strive with men. The idea there is that the Holy Spirit is striving with sinners. He is Fighting with sinners against their hardened hearts in order to bring them unto the true knowledge of, the, of God. And that is what we refer to as illumination, lighting up the mind with the truth of God. And so you have this spoken of in a very clear way in the book of John, chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, how be it when he, the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak and he will show you things to come. So the Holy Spirit speaks. He illuminates the minds with divine truth. But where he doesn't, he doesn't speak merely in an audible voice as though you could hear another person speaking to you. No, he speaks by his word, by the sacred scriptures, which he has inspired and given unto the church. It is that which he uses to illumine the minds of Those without faith, to bring them to the true knowledge of God. And so you notice how it's emphasized in that verse, he does not speak of himself. Often, when people have that first acquaintance with saving grace, It's often not the the Holy Spirit who is so prominent. It is usually the Lord Jesus himself. He, in his salvation, in his death upon the cross, in his resurrection from the dead, in all of his marvelous graces, he becomes everything to the Christian. He becomes the one that we trust in. And and how is it we ever come to know of him? Well, it is the Holy Spirit illumining our minds, giving us some kind of acquaintance with divine truth. Yes, he speaks of Christ, speaks of the gospel of salvation. He also speaks of the law. He speaks of the commandments of God, which show us that we are sinners, that we need Christ, that we need to go out to him in faith. Everything that is needed to prepare a sinner to receive Christ, it comes through this grace of the Holy Spirit, illumining our minds and hearts. We would also say that of these gifts, of that come about by the the, the Lord the Holy Spirit in dwelling His people, we also ought to see regeneration, what it is to be born again. This as well is a work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus talked about it in this way in John chapter three, verses five and six. Verily, verily, I say unto thee. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Until this great change happens in the soul of a sinner, they never have any kind of spiritual life in them. They can never trust in the gospel. They can never come to have a true relationship with the Lord, except they are born again. Just as you had no say in the fact that you were born from your mother's womb, so also you had no say, Christian, in the time or the circumstance of your new birth. The Holy Spirit worked that sovereignly, freely, Whether gradually or suddenly, there was this great work through the the word of the Lord and through the preaching of the gospel, through the testimony of his saints. He brought you to this place where you had spiritual life, implanted that principle in your soul such that you went out to the Lord in faith that source of saving faith. It comes not from man. It comes from the Holy Spirit. But what's emphasized in our catechism and and also in the scriptures is that this work of regeneration, whereby faith is born in the soul, that unites us unto Jesus Christ. So that this teaching of the indwelling of the Spirit and union with Christ, being united unto the Savior, they are very closely related in the Bible. So, the very same chapter which we read at the beginning, First Corinthians chapter six, which speaks of the Christian as the temple of the Holy Spirit, it also, in that same connection, talks about union with Christ. First Corinthians six verse seventeen. He that is joined unto the Lord is one Spirit. So the bond of our union with Christ, how it is we come to receive Christ and all his benefits, that comes through the Holy Spirit. And it's something we share with all Christians, with every brother and sister in the Lord. All those who've been born again, they are brought into this one church. This one church of true believers that call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, find their salvation in Him. It's through one Spirit that they have their unity, for that one Spirit unites them all unto the Lord Christ. He continues to speak in, in a special way in, about these benefits of union with Christ through the Holy Spirit in verse 11. Where he says, Ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. How is it that you can approach unto Jesus Christ in faith? How is it that you can come to see that He is the one who can save you from the condemnation of your sin? How He is the one who can give you all of the blessings of holiness and repentance and life. Well, it is only as the Spirit draws you unto Christ, brings you to see your need for Him, works that faith and trust in your soul. It is through the work of the Holy Spirit that you are united unto Christ. And so where we are united unto Christ, we are secure not only for life, but for eternity. In that same place, it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 14, And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. This is the unshakable resurrection hope of every child of God. We look unto the resurrection of the Lord Christ on the third day where the Lord God the Father received his sacrifice and rose his servant to get again from the grave. That is the sure pledge that we have, that all of us as well will also rise from the dead when he returns, and we will partake of eternal blessing and glory and honor through this spiritual union with Christ. What a glorious reality that the Holy Spirit indwelling us unites us unto the Lord Christ. But I think we also ought to see in this truth that there is a clear implication of the, of the Holy Spirit ruling over his people. When you think about the the Shekinah glory of God, filling that temple, do you not see that there is the ruler and king filling his great palace, making himself at home in a place that he is pleased to dwell in? So must it also be with the Christian who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, if we are the temple of the Lord, if we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, then all sin is utterly inconsistent with this reality. This is a reality, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that wars against the indwelling sin that we yet experience. Paul writes about that in Romans Chapter 8, verses 12 to 14. Wherefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. But if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify or kill the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And I think this is one of the surest marks of the Christian. Can you go on in sin and be happy, Christian? Can you go on in things that you know displease your Savior and to pretend like nothing has happened? Well, it is not so with the one who is indwelt with the Spirit of God. When you are living away from Him, And apart from his commandments, there is such a grief because he, the Holy Spirit, will not allow his holy temple to be corrupted with idols. He will not allow his pure dwelling place to be corrupted with that which is foul and polluted without a fight. No, you know this, Christian. Where you sin, you hate that sin. It grieves you. It fills you with sorrow. You want to be free of that sin. And that is the sure testimony that your life is not your own. You belong unto another. You belong to God, the Holy Spirit. And where he does rule over us, is it not a sweet thing to surrender unto that rule? As the Holy Spirit brings the commandments of God through the scriptures into our minds, is it not a sweet thing to surrender all unto him, to let him rule over everything in our lives, whether in our family or in our church or in our job, to say, what is pleasing unto the the Lord, the Holy Spirit? I will walk in that way. I will walk in the way of the Spirit, for I am but his temple. And he is my Lord. Of course, the Catechism draws out the great truth about the comfort of the Holy Spirit, does it not? That he may comfort me and abide with me forever. For congregation, there's so much that fills the child of God with grief and sorrow. There's the afflictions of this world, there's the trials of the devil. There's the sorrow over indwelling sin. There is the great weakness of our faith. And how is it that we can receive comfort? It's only as it comes to the Holy Spirit of God at work in our hearts. He, as we've heard already, is called the Comforter, bringing the comfort and consolation of Jesus Christ unto our hearts. As he reminds us of our true identity in the Lord Jesus Christ, reminding us of the gospel of salvation, reminding us of the promises of God. We are stirred up in our souls to take heart, to remember that we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to him. I love what it says there in Romans chapter 8. In verses 15 to 17. But ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. But ye have received the spirit of adoption. Whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Have you ever found that? There you are, kneeling down in prayer. Sitting down to prayer. And you're seeking to find some way of access unto God. You speak unto him in the name of Christ. You confess your sin, and it all seems as though you're but grasping into the darkness. And there, as you struggle on and strive with the Lord in prayer, have you found that there is deep within you a cry unto God the Father, Abba, Father, where does such a prayer come from? It, it comes from he who intercedes for us, who advocates for us, who comforts us in our deepest distress. Even the Holy Spirit of God, he who indwells us, he is always our companion. He never forsakes his temple. Instead, he will ensure that his temple is progressively purified and sanctified, preserved all the way unto the end. And so there is such boldness that comes from from knowing the Holy Spirit. Oh, how often do we become so discouraged and sorrowful to live the Christian life. We feel as though we are utterly unworthy to take another step with this, the living God. And then we're reminded of, of what it is said there, um, that we have not received the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. He, the Holy Spirit, will deliver us from all fears and sorrows. If we would surrender unto him, he will stir us up to see that his great promises are for us and that God will never forsake his own. When we come to see these great gifts that come through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit congregation, we are left, I believe, with, uh, with many applications, but let me just focus on two that we ought to take away with us today as we reflect upon both the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit. The first is this. We ought to be much in prayer that we would receive more of the Holy Spirit, both as individuals and as a church. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? It is the delight of God the Father to send his Holy Spirit. When we would desire more spiritual life, more sight of the Lord Jesus, more holiness and more faithfulness, we have but to ask. The bountiful, generous hand of God is free to give. Are we praying for him, congregation? Are we praying that the Holy Spirit would bless the preaching of the word? That he would bless the evangelism in our community. That he would bless our witness in our families and in our neighborhoods. Are we praying that his great temple, the church of the living God, would be increasingly filled with him such that it is purged of all that is of the world and of the devil. Let us be much in prayer for more of the Holy Spirit. For both holiness, sanctification, as well as new conversions unto the Lord. But that, this is the second application I would draw from this as well. And that is we must not grieve the Holy Spirit. It says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Congregation, if we would take anything in this sermon to heart, let it be this. The Holy Spirit is a person, a divine person. And where we would go on living in sin as Christians, we bring grief to his holy heart. And to bring sorrow and grief to the Holy Spirit is to be our own worst enemy, it is to strive against ourselves and our happiness. And the very blessing of the living God. If the Lord, the Holy Spirit, has gotten a hold of you today and has pointed to things that you know are displeasing in His sight, if you would but say today that I am through with that compromise, through with that sin, through with that worldliness, done with that idol, then this, the Holy Spirit, would fill your life with light and blessing. For the blessings of true holiness and service of him are much better than the passing pleasures of sin. But if we do grieve the Holy Spirit of the Lord, how can we expect anything as a church? How can we expect that a single other person should be saved from the preaching of God? How should we expect that anything of his his worship shall be received of him? How is it that we could expect any blessing whatsoever as a church if we would but grieve the Holy Spirit in his utterly inconsistent congregation to be a Christian and to live in a way that is contrary to this, the desires of the Holy Spirit of God? where we would see something of his glorious person and divine love and merciful grace to sinners, let this cause us to not only seek more of him, but as well to always succumb and surrender to his leading in our lives as he directs us by his spirit of truth. All praise and glory unto God the Holy Spirit,